This is episode 168 with Tom Cronin. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. a coach, meditation teacher, author, speaker, and producer of the film called The Portal. He's literally changing the world one mind at a time. For you long-term listeners, you know that one of one of the words that I anchor into and live by from my personal philosophy is wisdom, to embody wisdom. Tom Cronin is wisdom. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to have him on the podcast at this time, at this time in the world where we're experiencing some interesting times and some times that can make us feel stuck and forced or operate from fear and judgment and lots of opinions being thrown around as opposed to really operating from our truest best selves and embodying wisdom. So whilst we talk a lot about meditation in this episode, if you think, oh, I'm not interested in meditation, I'll just stop you there and say that that's just one tool. But everything else that Tom talks about is the way that you can navigate life from a different perspective to not feel the stress and the chaos in this tumultuous time. And also to give you a completely different perspective, hopefully, Um, or hopefully not, that you've already got this perspective, but just for you to hear a different perspective that might not be given to you from the media, from the news, and from a lot of people in the world at the moment. The time that we are experiencing is very unique, and I just want to say that wherever you're at in this journey, whatever choices you're making, I have zero judgment, and I only send love, compassion, and support to you and your family and your loved ones and your community based on whatever decision you make. I have zero judgment. I have all faith in humanity. I anchor into optimism and belief. And as I move forward from that space, I know that this shit show we're going through at the moment is going to shine some pretty amazing light on the world. And for those of us who can get through the dark times, I've been through some fucking dark times in my life. And it's because of those that I'm a stronger, better version of myself. And I know that it's the same for everyone on this planet. Unfortunately, there's going to be some some, some damage done that's irreparable. Some irreparable collateral damage. And that's what seems to happen in this human experience. Through every generation, including the time that we're living through right now. So, as you listen to Tom, I... I challenge you to listen with a very open mind and suspend judgment of yourself or the world and allow this to be kind of a beautiful, safe 
space that you're in right now and listening to it from that space. And whatever choices you make off the back of this episode, (laughs) they're the right choices around every aspect. So we talk a lot about Tom's experience and his turmoil and tumultuous life that he had before discovering a new path. And we talk a lot about having high stressful jobs and what that does to us from a physiological state and how we can change things just slightly on a daily basis to make a massive impact in our lives, in our family relationships, and of course, in our future, our optimistic future. Tom, as I said, is a very wise guy, so he will he will answer the questions from his wisdom, not from what he thinks people want to hear. And that's what I truly, truly respect about Tom. The film The Portal, he speaks about it towards the end and you can just Google The Portal movie and you can find that, but you can also find it on Tom's social media and he's best to follow on Instagram at Tom Cronin, T-O-M-C-R-O-N-I-N. And he's got his website as well, tomcronin.com. Wherever you're listening to this in the world, whether you're in lockdown or not, whatever decisions you are making, whatever challenges, whatever beauty you are surrounded by, I'm here with you, I hear you, I feel you, I support you. Now let's hear from the legend himself, Tom Cronin. Tom, thanks for joining me, mate. And I am going to hit you with a big question straight up and I would love to know who is Tom Cronin. So do you have a few words to describe yourself? Do you have a personal philosophy? Who is Tom Cronin? Gosh, I could answer that on so many different levels. Uh, I could answer it on a macro spiritual level, which is I am nobody, no thing, nothing. Um, I am omnipresence. I'm the divine. I am source. Currently, temporarily encased in a small little vessel called a physical body. But on a personal level, I'm a father, husband, uh, teacher, author, filmmaker, meditation teacher. And I feel, yeah, really a deliverer of, you know, deliverer of some form of message to support and assist humanity into the waking up process of realizing our fundamental nature, our absolute nature, our divine quality. How important do you think it is that everybody has a clear understanding of who they are? Maybe not at the depths that you do, because it, I think it would require a lot of time and a lot of work, but to to the point where they can sort of connect, connect with themselves to answer a question like that of who they are. It's essential. It's the source of all sufferings that disconnect. It's the, it's the key missing ingredient that has seen us in an individualized egocentric state for thousands of years. And I relate to it myself because I spent most of my life in it and still have degrees of my life in that. And I know when I'm in that state, I have suffering. And when I'm not in that state, I have divine bliss. So it's essential that we start to realize, and this is what we're here to do. We're not here to actually get more cars. We're not here to have more babies. We're not here to have, you know, a bigger crypto portfolio. We're actually here to realize the very essence of who we are and not get distracted by this. And you mentioned there that you have experienced life um, very, let's say, distracted and on the other side of things before having this clarity about yourself. 
uh, your what you mentioned there before about what you do as a part of who you are. We'll dive into that, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that time of your life when maybe you lived that fast-paced grinding, um, maybe chasing the cars and all of those elements that you said we're not here for. What was that part of your life like before you discovered what you're doing now? It's just full of peaks and troughs. It's a pain-pleasure dynamic that we're addicted to. Uh, and I still, don't get me wrong, I still like a nice car. So it's not like I completely shave my head and go and live in a cave and withdraw myself from the world. So it's important that people don't realize that that's what has to happen or don't think that that's what has to happen. But it's when we define ourselves by that dynamic of seeking pleasure or trying to avoid pain. And and that's what my life was like. You know, a lot of addictions, a lot of sensory pleasure, um, you know, chasing money and cars and drugs and drinking and parties and being defined by the pleasures of the external world, which can only lead to a polarity of the peak trough experience, which will lead to pains as well, you know, because it has to have some mechanism to guide us, to remind us that that's not what life is about. That's not what we're here for. And so what we end up discovering is through that discomfort of, for me, it was anxiety and depression and panic attacks is a mechanism by an intelligence within the universe to support us. And this is where the world's at now is I see so much pain and suffering because we're being guided and supported to be less distracted. And, uh, that's the, I think that's a big lesson for us all. What career did you have and how old were you when things started to shift for you? Yeah, I was a broker. I was on a massive trading room floor, like Wolf of Wall Street. It's like a massive, huge floor, you know, 150 guys yelling and screaming, trading all sorts of things from the yen, the Swissy, the, the Deutsche Mark, the pound, the, um, you know, cash, bank bills, swaps, bonds. And so I was, uh, I was on a desk. There's lots of desks trading different sort of products on this big trading room floor. And I was on a desk that traded swaps and bonds and inflation swaps, bonds, corporate bonds, semi-government bonds. And it was, it was fast. It was exciting. It was furious. I, I loved it. You know, it was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a a, a journalist writing articles for time magazine and saving the world from capitalistic greed. Next thing I'm on a trading room floor making tons of money. So uh, how ironic was that? But (laughs) yeah, you know, it was a big part of that job was just by day fast and furious and by night, you know, we had to win clients business. So we'd take them out with our corporate Amex card and go out and wine and dine them till the wee hours of the morning, hoping that the next day after spending lots of money in them, they'd give us lots of business. Of course, they were good guys. So it wasn't just about that. It was about connecting with them, but um, that was just part of the culture. And before long, you're drinking a lot, you're taking a lot of drugs and you're doing what was the culture back then in late eighties, early nineties. I started at 19. So I'd been in that career all up 26 years, but I started at 19. And was it the, was it that kind of lifestyle? You mentioned there that you experienced a lot of anxiety and depression and a lot of high levels of stress. Was it that kind of lifestyle that mostly led to it? Or was there other aspects of your uh, behaviors and your actions uh, or other emotional addictions that kind of led to that as well? I think it's a bit of a blend, you know, partly it was very much a lifestyle thing. So, you know, you're, all day just frenetic just lots of adrenaline pumping through your system so you're in a sympathetic nervous system state that's the fight flight and then nighttime you know you're in bars wine bar wine bars restaurants nightclubs till the wee hours of the morning weekends i was in rave uh that i got into the rave culture in a big way with my mate so that's big warehouse parties till six seven eight in the morning you know every weekend and so the nervous system had so little um ability to repair and restore balance and so you're constantly in this 
it's like a car just, you know, on a racetrack all day long, night and day, not having any time to sort of just have a breather. And so uh, that was partly lifestyle and, and, and habits. And then partly because my, I guess, genetic makeup is that, you know, my family were very much perfectionists and I try so hard to do everything to the nth degree and to do it really well. So I, you know, I was very much, um, yeah, just tried very hard to excel in everything that I did. What point did it get to for you um, to to start to make the shift and how did you get into the meditation and exploring things differently? Yeah, it had to be, it had to be rock bottom for me because I'm so stubborn. So it really was a, a, a gradual deterioration over many years of just getting more and more stressed, more and more anxious, more and more depressed, more and more insomnia, more and more tired, more and more sick. And then eventually it blew up in... Yeah, early 1996 when I had, yeah, just a full-blown sort of breakdown, a uh, bit of a basket case then. I was seeing psychiatrists and doctors put on pharmaceutical drugs, put on suicide watch, um, not in a good way at all. And then at that point I was taking time off work, I couldn't go to work and I was taking mental health leave. And, yeah, I came across a documentary about a guy that was doing great things as a property developer but he'd used meditation and he attributed some of his success to meditation. And that was like the light bulb moment for me. It was the first time I'd ever really come across meditation in my life. I'd never really, you know, it wasn't like we had apps in 1996 or people were talking about it. it wasn't in the corporate sector or no one I knew in my life meditated. So it was very alien for me. And I grew up on a farm and I'm in the finance industry. So yeah, it was not something I was familiar with, but then it was like this light bulb moment that I knew that that's something I needed to go and explore. So that was the start of it. And through that exploration, you obviously found some some light and some different emotions that still allowed you because you still pursued that career, didn't you, in finance? And but yeah, from 16 obviously more years. sixteen more years with without the addictions, without the drinking, without the partying, pretty much, yeah. I mean, look, it didn't mean I just you know became a monk. You know, I still <laughs> took clients out. I still went to hung out with my mates. Still went to enjoyed music, and still to this day, and I went to Burning Man just a couple of years ago. So. Um, it's not that I removed myself from that world, but what happens was, interestingly, when you start to meditate, particularly to the degree that I was meditating, you know, with quite a sort of discipline, um, your biochemistry changes quite rapidly. So what I was craving in addictions, and really we're not addicted to drugs, we're not addicted to alcohol, we're not addicted to gambling, we're not addicted to sex. We're addicted to the sensation that we get when we do that action. And it's the biochemical that we're looking for really that's all we're craving. And it's just that some people need different actions to trigger that biochemical. And when we meditate, what happens because we're in a state of fight flight, you can't have those biochemicals in your body that make you feel good. What you have is cortisol and adrenaline. You're not meant to feel bliss and happy and full of love when you're on a battlefield in a Braveheart scene, you know, against a marauding tribe. You're a US Marine, you know, you're, when you're facing a life and death situation, it's not the time to be producing oxytocin, melatonin or serotonin, which is what MDMA does. It triggers the release of some of those biochemicals. So we don't even crave MDMA. What we're craving is the, the biochemicals that that triggers the release of into our body. And so when I started meditating, it blew me away because I started getting these sort of releases of these biochemicals that made me feel incredibly blissful. And that interestingly replaced the addictions because I started to just feel better anyway. And the addictions just melt away. And this is why when I work with a lot of people with addictions, I don't have any problem with their addiction. 
I have a problem with the source or the avenue they're seeking to find fulfillment. And all we need to do is just replace it. And there's something about people that have addictions is that there's, there's this yearning, there's this knowingness of something else, something higher, something more profound. It's just that we're so conditioned to look for it in a world that's programmed into us to look for it in, in drinking or in drugs. And so what we need to do is take people higher and look for them to get to that higher state that's within us all that is very blissful. What about if it's not an addiction? And so a lot of the a lot of my listeners are business owners or business leaders, and they're very driven to succeed, which is awesome. And in that same dedication to their craft, they might then uh, establish poorer health. They might have relationship um, conflicts with their partner, with their kids, with themselves, and they it can be a real internal conflict as well because they also feel like well what's the other alternative because i need to be successful in my career or my business to provide for the family or whatever that might be so if it's not an addiction so to say for those pleasure chemicals but it is that a similar kind of addiction that we get to work or is it just that we're so wound up in that stress state like what you were talking about that it just becomes a way of life and we haven't experienced the, the other states of the, the neurochemical releases. By the way, I froth over all those neurochemical releases that you talk about too. I'm just trying to put it into context for everyone else listening sure. to that might um, be able to relate to it in a different way. We've got to wind it all the way back and ask what motivates every single action, every single action on the planet, whether you're putting your garbage bin out, whether you're going to Tibet to meditate in a monastery, whether you're going to do crack cocaine in a ghetto, whether you're going to the grocery store or to a tin cannery, it doesn't matter. Every single action is motivated in the quest to find fulfillment. And this is what we call outcome-oriented fulfillment, where we move towards the direction of some acquisition or experience to experience some degree of fulfillment as a result, as a byproduct of that. And this is what has had us basically almost extinct ourselves because of the constant craving and search to get something or experience something to get that experience of fulfillment. And what we need to do is we need to shift people and that program into not an outcome-oriented fulfillment, but a self-referred fulfillment, knowing that fulfillment is something that sounds cheesy, comes from within, but we're talking biochemically, fulfillment comes from within. When you can produce those biochemicals of serotonin, oxytocin, melatonin sleeping better, your body starts to operate at a such higher level and you get such optimization out of your brain, out of your body, that what happens is you establish a fulfillment within inside yourself. And then what happens is like, oh, wow, this is really strange. I'm not driven to go into action to get fulfillment because I'm already fulfilled. So therefore, what does action become? Action becomes an expression of fulfillment. So rather than going, I'm feeling lack, I'm feeling empty, I need to go and get something or do something to make me feel better, to make me feel fuller, then experiencing fullness and going, now what do I do? Well, I'm going to move in a direction to express that fulfillment, to express that creativity, to express that abundance. And this is why we see people change the things that they do in their life in such a remarkable way. And you know, I always come back to Ray Dalio, the world's largest hedge fund manager that manages $180 billion worth of assets. And he says in a tweet, and you can Google this Ray Dalio tweet meditation. And he says that the key to his ingredient, sorry, the ingredient to his success is his meditation practice. And Oprah Winfrey, her whole company, she, she, 
the whole company meditates at nine in the morning and four in the afternoon. And she says mm. it is from that space that you create your best work and your best life. And the space that she's talking about is that space of inner being, that space of inner bliss, that space of inner divine nature. And from that space, you go into your relationships, you go into your work, you go into your play, and it's a totally different way of interacting with the world. I think that's really key for people to understand is that it's it's the place you operate from and not the place you're trying to chase to get to. And the hard part is, is if, if people haven't or aren't experiencing that space, they kind of also don't know what they're missing out on or you not even missing out know. on. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And not even missing out on to go one step before that you, they don't, un, um, they don't know what opportunities in terms of whether it's the career, but in terms of feelings, in terms of relationships, in terms of joy and fulfillment and everything that you spoke of, you don't know which ones you're missing out on because we're so blinded by the current experiences and the doing, doing, doing. So it's a, do you find that it's a hard transition for people to make that are in that, um, I won't even say grind and hustle because people might not be hustling, but they're in that doing motion and it, they get a bit of stress and maybe some burnout, but definitely operating from stress a lot of the time. Is it a hard transition for people to make, to feel what we're talking about and then operate from that space? It's, it's actually surprisingly quite graceful. It's it's incredibly graceful. The The key is, when you have someone that's stressed, burnt out, tired, overwhelmed, and um, you introduce them to a meditation technique that they can incorporate while they're doing what they're doing. So just keep working in the same job. Everything you're doing is just keep doing it, but just take a portion of your day aside. And I suggest 20 minutes morning, 20 minutes afternoon. Now, when my teacher said that, I'm like, holy moly, like, how am I going to get that time? And what I came up with was my 72 20 minute method, which means that every day has 72 20 minute portion, portions of pie 72 20 minute portions of pie 24 hours three blocks of 20 in each hour that's 72 20 minute segments that you allocate to finding mm -hmm. fulfillment and all i had to do was take two of them out to meditate and leave the other 70 doing exactly what i was doing so you still do all the things you're doing but just take two out of 72. and then what happens is you start to gradually gracefully start to notice differences and you just go, you know what, I, normally I just go for a blinder after work and knock back 15 beers, but you know what, I feel like maybe I'm just going to go for a jog or go to the gym or maybe I'm going to go home and meditate or maybe I'm going to go to yoga class. And you just find you're drawn to different things and you find that your mind's a lot clearer and you're deciding that because you're starting to feel better inside yourself, you start finding that you gravitate towards healthier foods and you start getting a lot more intuitive about what your body's needs are. So your body starts to get optimized. And there's this sort of slow evolving of your own paradigm internally and externally, the things you're deciding to do, the things you're attracting, the state you're in, the decisions you're making. And we just find it fairly, flows fairly easily. Yeah. I find that with the people I work with, I do coherence breathing. So introducing them to five seconds in, five seconds out or six and six and, you know, committing to at least three minutes a day and and then from that space, making decisions because I've, and, and educating them on the difference between responsive and reactive and rational and logical versus irrational and illogical and just giving them that experience, that technique so they can experience that 
And I find that's a really good transition with the work that I do. And especially over my longer programs, because from that experience, then they're a little bit more open to say, well, I wonder how else I can experience. I wonder how else I can get through these busy days without that stress. Because I always say to people too, that the external environment is always going to throw challenges, adversities, stresses, like the universe will just keep nudging you in different kind of ways. Uh, but you have control over the internal environment. So a lot of that perceived stress and that transition. So uh, thank you for elaborating on that time. That's a really good, the, what do you call it? The 7220 principle, because that would be the first thing people would say, I don't have time. What do you say to people that don't have time? You know, for ever since the sun's been rising around planet earth, it's not really rising. We're turning around it, but um, there's been 24 hours in the day, roughly. So that's never changed. It's just, we have greater capacity to choose more and more options that are charming. That's all that's happened. We have greater options to find charm in greater areas. So if we would take the same person back, say 300 years and say, okay, now you've got a normal day and you go, well, look, I can peel potatoes, sow the field, click firewood or meditate. I guess I'll meditate. Take them in today's world. It's like, okay, you got Instagram, you got Facebook, you got Twitter, you got emails, you can go down to Messina, get some ice cream, you've got your Uber Eats, you've got your Netflix, you've got your Amazon, uh, you've got your emails, and you've got a myriad of infinite distraction, infinite charm pulling your attention. And everything's vying for each other. Everything's vying mm. for your eyeballs and your attention. Even the head of Netflix said, we've got three competitors YouTube, Facebook, and sleep. Oh, so there's so much competing for our attention that we don't even want to shut our eyes. Okay. And so it's not that we have less time. It's just that we have greater distraction and greater pleasure that we can find through acquisitions and experiences. And so what we have to look at is, um, wh wh how's that working out for you? And if it's working out for you, then keep doing it. If, if life's rip roaring, fist pumping, hell yeah, this is, I've got this, this is amazing then there's nothing wrong with that. Just keep doing it. But if you do want to find greater capacity to deal with the world and the fast paced change that's going on, if you want greater adaptive capacity, if you want to sleep better, if you want to have a better nervous system, if you have, want to have better biochemistry, if you want to dive deeper into a deeper understanding about fundamental truth and your essential nature, then I just allocate a little bit of time each day. Even if it's 10 minutes twice a day, that's the 10 by 144, 144 segments of 10 minutes in your day. And you can take 142 of them and do everything else that you're doing and just park two of them aside to sit in quietness and stillness. And I think until you do that, um, you can't make judgment on it. And you can't say that you don't need it or you don't want it until you do that. Because I remember when I first started meditating, I've only been doing it for maybe five years and it's because I heard I started listening to podcasts or maybe six or seven years actually and I've worked out that 80% of the podcast guests were meditating like they were talking about how vital it was and they were quite successful and aligned you know inspiring people genuine human souls and I thought hang on if most of these people are doing this and crediting that there's got to be something in it because I'd heard the word before I didn't know much about it and so I thought, well, I'm going to explore it. I'm going to commit this month to just doing it every day because I don't know, I can't judge it without doing it. And yeah, and then now it's just a regular practice because 
um, what I experienced in that time wasn't this major shift and life changed and everything, you know, I wasn't, you know, floating on a cloud and never had stress. It was those micro changes that you talked about where I realized the small things and I've all, I've said, I've, always said I'm an optimistic lover of life, but it was always small things that would annoy me or piss me off or I'd get distracted or whatever it might be. They started to minimize and kind of melt away. And I must admit, pre-children, I had a great morning routine with a good long uh, meditation. And since the kids have come along, I've got a almost a two and a half year old and a six month old. Um, it's bloody difficult. I don't have those long mornings all the time, uh, actually very rarely at the moment. But I'll still factor in either a breathing meditation or a mantra-based meditation as often as I can. And this morning, I had the opportunity to do that. And whilst I was there, I didn't want to come out. And when I knew, I, I know I wasn't in a meditative state when I started to think, okay, I don't want to come out of this space, but that's the space it put me in. I thought, I actually don't want to open my eyes. This is, this is beautiful right here. This is calmness. This is bliss. This is stillness. I'm not distracted by anything here. And I feel bloody good. So I think um, what we're saying there about that, those experiences, it's really easy for us in the world to judge anything, just throw a judgment, throw an opinion. But if you can just suspend judgment and, you know, opinions don't really get us anywhere and then you can speak from experience and whatever you choose beyond that, that's the right choice, I believe. Yeah, and just coming, you know, there's no doubt lots of mums and dads out there that have got newborns. You know, I've got two kids, they're 19 now, so you definitely get your mornings back soon. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. That feels good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, even in that, you know, it's important that we don't exclude, you know, and, and get too hardcore about, oh, my goodness, I've got to shut my day down twice a day for meditation. Uh, if, if we don't get the time to close our eyes in that silence and stillness, which is going to happen sometimes as a, we call it a, as a household or someone that's not in a monastery or an ashram, then we, we divert our practice into what's called bhakti. Bhakti is devotion and that's where action becomes devotional. So it's mindful action in service of love for others. And that could be, you know, changing a nappy. It could be putting out the garbage could be, uh, you know, doing the washing up while your wife's trying to get a break and have a nap. And so um, it becomes something where we're very mindful about our actions. So now you're not getting to close your eyes and sit in a chair and meditate, but you can still be in the meditation whilst in action. And this is what we call bhakti or bhakti yoga, which is a really beautiful way to, to be in action. That's a really cool way to think of it, actually, because I express that in the way that when I had kids, I really, I meditated a lot on how I want to be as a father. No, sorry, who I want to be as a father. And I came up with a couple of words that I want to be present and involved. And presence to me meant, obviously, when I'm there, I'm with them, but also I want to be there as often as I can. Uh, not to say that for fathers that have to go away and work for weeks on end or just for the work day and come back that there's a right or wrong in that. But for me, I thought, how can I set up my life that I'm present for hours and hours every day and still have impact in my work? And then when I'm with them, that I'm actually present as well and not distracted by my phone or um, the thoughts in my head or anything like that. So that was a big one. And then also um, involved meant to be the empathetic connected husband 
and to change the first and every as many pooey nappies as I can and to support my gorgeous wife as much as possible. So as I heard you saying that, what you were talking about there, that kind of resonated with me with the the presence aspect where it can feel like a chore, all of the things that we've got to do. And yeah, you can say that they're chores, but you can also be present with them and realize oh, it's, it's actually a beautiful thing that I get to change so many pooey nappies because supporting the kids, supporting my wife, and I make it a fun time with my kids when I change their pooey nappies. It was actually the last thing I did just before I jumped onto this uh, podcast yeah. with you, mate. <laughs> so it's really cool to hear it in that, that term there, that, that different kind of perspective for me. Nice. Yeah, beautiful. Mate, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, the only gear that we're shifting is what the external environment is throwing at us at the moment. I feel like everything still relates back to what we're talking about. And we're living in really interesting times in the world. Um, and what I experience is that, you know, I haven't watched the news for years and I haven't believed any of the, the bureaucrats um, or a lot of decisions that have been made for a lot of years. And what I'm finding at the moment, though, is that uh, there's a lot of actions and decisions that are being made from fear, from the leaders and from from my friends and family, from people around us, from community members. There's just a lot of uh, noise in the world at the moment. And like I said before, I've always been an optimistic lover of life and as I explore how I'm going to navigate or how I am navigating these challenging times, it's easy for me to get triggered into like a little bit of fear or disappointment. Some frustration comes up because I'm looking at both sides of the equation and I'm making my decisions based on actually listening to both sides of the equation. And when I feel myself getting triggered into those states, I just come back to either just breathing in the moment or a meditation practice, because I know that the only way I'm going to make the right choice, whether it's the way I interact with my family or whether it's what I say yes and no to, the only way I'm going to make the right choice is if I don't operate from fear, worry, doubt, judgment. Um, And if I operate from, if I just sink into, like you talked about before, the intuition and my heart and operate from love and, and a clear mind, not a busy mind, and when I operate from that space, it's really easy for me. It's just like, oh yeah, no brainer, done. That's the decision I'm making without judgment um, and and just knowing that it's right. And bef- whatever decision people make, I have zero judgment on that around the, the world's um, interesting times that we're in because I believe that the opportunity is there for everyone to make a decision that way. And even if they don't, if they do make it from fear, I still have zero judgment because I know that there will be a time that there is clarity for them to, to make that. So I just wanted to put that out there. But as we, as we shift back to the question, what, there's a kind of a couple of ways that I want to put this. So, and when I say the interesting times, it's the obvious of, you know, Australia is going into multiple, multiple lockdowns. There's rules that have been put down left, right and centre. There's this push to, be, to have to be vaccinated and, you know, I saw something disgusting pop up. Um, if you're not vaccinated, you're part of the problem. And I thought, well, that's definitely not a compassionate, empathetic viewpoint to try and support people in making a decision. Um, but I'd love to hear from your perspective around all of this. How are you personally navigating um, these times? And 
what happens when we as humans operate and make choices from fear, judgment, worry, doubt, all of those, as opposed to sinking back into to heart and love and trust and respect and honor and compassion? Hmm. Such an interesting time we're in. We can look at things, um, and most people will look at things on a micro perspective from their own individual state, which is the state that most of the world's been in for many thousands of years. We call it in Sanskrit, the Kali Yuga, Kali meaning ignorance, but ignorance of their divine unbounded essential nature. This is the, the spirit self. Okay. Some could call it Holy Spirit. Some could call it God self. Some could call it higher self. Some could call it source. There's an aspect of us that transcends a physical, mental and emotional body and in Sanskrit, it's got a name called Turiya. Turiya is that fourth state, that fourth aspect of us, which is the unboundedness. If we don't have access to that, we don't. If we do have always access to it. If we're not aware of it, if we're not realized of it, then we can only operate from our individual self. This is going to be a bit of a long answer. I hope that's okay. Beautiful, um, if we please. Operate from the individual self, which is we call it the ego. Okay, and the ego by nature can't be anything but narcissistic, which means it must do things based upon its own individual needs, its own individual desires, its own individual wants. And it will be decisions made out of desire and greed because I need that because if I get that, then I'm going to be happier. We got back to that before where I'm in out external, external fulfillment that is uh, sourcing fulfillment from the outside world. So if I get more then I'm going to be happier, whether it's a business an individual, because businesses are actually individuals. If it's a country, again, that's individuals. Um, there's no such thing as countries unless there's individuals in countries, right? Mm -hmm. Say there's no individuals and there's no countries. And so it's all a structure of an intellectual egoic structure. And that's driven by its own personal needs. And there's two things that are driving that fear and desire. Okay. So you're either making decisions out of desire or making decisions out of fear from the ego self. Mm -hmm. What's been lacking on this planet, which is the defining characteristic of the Kali Yuga, just go to Wikipedia and type in Kali, K-A-L-I, you'll see the descriptions of Kali Yuga and go, oh my goodness, that's like the world that we're living in. It's like we've been living in that world for 10,000 years, which is conflict, disease, famine, rage, greed, lust, desire, all sorts of things. Now, what follows on from Kali Yuga in the Vedic worldview is a period of time called Sat Yuga, Sat meaning bliss or wisdom, a period of time when wisdom prevails and there's greater sense of knowledge and unity and harmony. And that's because people have transcended their own individual state and experiencing themselves experientially, not intellectually, as part of a whole. You can't but make a decision as an individual because you actually aren't individual anymore. You're more of the whole than you are the individual. So you go from a me to a we type culture. Now you can type in game B wiki and what you'll find is a group of people starting to build a framework around game B, which is really sat yuga, but just in new contemporary language. And it's really interesting, these people that are designing this and putting this structure around what this we type world will look like. And then when we experience things at a we type state, you can't but help start feeling that your decisions and your actions are motivated by the whole because you actually are the whole. It's like the wave suddenly experiencing itself not as a wave, but as the ocean, even though it still knows it's a wave. And so now it knows that if I'm a wave and I'm the ocean and everything is the ocean, then that other wave is me. So therefore I have to do something that's going to support that other way because it is actually an extension of me. Just as the hand wouldn't pick up a hammer and hit the toe because even though the toe is a separate form, it's still part of the hole. Mm. And the whole hole is going to feel that, right? 
Now, it doesn't mean we become perfect and like this most perfect being because I've still got my ego and I still have my own idiosyncrasies and characteristics that, you know, extend from an ego. But there's a lot less of the ego than there used to be. So therefore, I operate and act differently than I used to. And so coming to a personal level, I do experience a lot more of the whole these days. And so I start to think, and I think everyone, no matter what decision they're making, whether it's this side of the fence or that side of the fence, all want the same thing. Everyone wants to be healthy and happy predominantly. Mm. It's just a matter of what's motivating those actions. Is it fear and desire? So some might say pharmaceutical companies actually have their bottom line to address and they have a huge uh, shareholder uh, audience that are waiting for their decisions every day to make sure that they're increasing their profits. And there has to be in a game, a world, an increase of profitability and at any cost really. And so that game, a model is very unsustainable. It's a self-terminating game and it's a win-lose game. And what we see in game B is very different characteristics on every level, political, economic, sporting, pharmaceutical, the works. And it's where everything is created and built and structured for the collective gain for the whole. And when we say the whole, we don't just mean humans, we actually mean the planet. So we have to revalue things. We have to value air, we have to value trees, we have to value water in a different way than what we currently value them. We don't value trees, we value four by two. We don't value the ocean, we value whales and fish. We don't value the air, we value the buildings we can put up into the air or the planes that we can fly through the air. And so we have to completely rebuild our systems but we can't do that until we get enough people out of the me culture into the we culture. And that comes through transcendence of the, of the me in our meditation. So where do I come to on all of this? I guess down onto the micro level. I listen to my body and I really listen deeply into what feels in alignment, what feels congruent, what feels like the best long-term outcome, not just for my own personal health, but for the collective as a whole. And I can see on the horizon, this is someone that can see, and you look far down the line, you look, you kick that can a long way down the road. Now I know there's some immediate concerns. We do need, there is a, there is a virus and there is a problem and we do need to solve that problem. There's no question about it. We've just got to think how far are we kicking that can down the road and what are the long-term ramifications of some of these short-term decisions? And when I ask people, okay, what does that look like for you in, in six months time with the decision you've just made? How protected, how healthy are you going to be in two years' time? Do you know the ramifications of that? No, no, I don't. Well, then have you thought about that? Because how many more of those decisions do you have to make to stay protected? And what are you protected from? So I think it's really about tuning in. It's about trying to maintain the most optimal state of well-being and health as possible, being sovereign in your health as much as possible, um, and listening to listening to an individual and collective decision-making process that's going to support the whole. That's Thank you for sharing that. that. No, no, don't ever apologize for speaking wisdom. Um, one of the words in my philosophy is wisdom and I'm a massive believer in it. And that's what I feel like is being surpassed at the moment by, um, by the decisions are being made. So thank you for sharing that. And if people didn't connect with that, then slow down, breathe, take your time this afternoon or this morning, whenever it is, and do your meditation and then reconnect with what uh, was just said from Peter, because there's a lot of wisdom in there. Two things that I want to unfold from that then is um, 
what do you see with the tin can being kicked down the road? Because when I, before we started recording, I asked what you're grateful for. And one of the things you mentioned family. And one of the things that you mentioned was also that there's a, there's a change that you're witnessing or feeling that there is a bit of a transition. So what is it that you are optimistic about? Yeah, we, what is we this change it. you're witnessing? <laughs> we asked this film in the, uh, the question in the film, or Daniel Schmachtenberger in our film, The Portal, asked this question of what does life look like on an enlightened planet? And he, not hypothetically, um, what's it when you ask a question, you don't need a response? What's the saying of that? I can't remember it. It's when you ask a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question, but he did ask us, the director and myself, off air when we were interviewing him for the film. He asked us to ask the audiences that we're in front of when we're presenting the film or talking about the film to start asking the audience if they could start to contemplate what life might be like on an enlightened planet. Because at the moment, as he said, no one, there's no body or organization that is envisioning that. There's no one that's organizing that. There's no one that's creating or designing that. And therefore we don't have a North star of how to get there because we don't have a roadmap or a vision of what it looks like. But we need to start doing that and we need to start exploring that and we need to start contemplating, my goodness, what would the education system look like on an enlightened planet? What would the medical system? What would the pharmaceutical system? What would the political system? What would be the supporting sporting system look like? Would there be a sporting system? Would we have win-lose paradigms? Would we have competition? Would we have the idea that I'm better than someone else? And so it really starts to open up this incredible uh, landscape of something truly magnificent where there's a, not just an integratedness and, and, and harmonization of different cultures and races, but, um, but also humans with the rest of the planet. And we're already starting to see the emergence of organizations that are starting to build systems and start to build out frameworks for what that world might look like. It's quite exciting. And so for me, what we're going through is an awakening we're going through a phase where ignorance is being faded out by wisdom and that it's a really really exciting time doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult it's going to be very difficult it's going to be very tumultuous and we're going to see a lot of change and we're going to see this demand for increased adaptive capacity we're going to need to increase our adaptive capacity but if we don't have the tools techniques and strategies to increase our adaptive capacity we're going to have this huge gap between the need to increase adaptive capacity and our resistance or lack of capacity to adapt. And that's going to cause huge levels of stress and discomfort and disease for people. So what is it that you foresee in the optimism? Um, is it a world where whatever choice you make about the vaccine, it comes without resistance and therefore over time the um, the rules that are being brought in at the moment about you can and can't do this with or without a vaccination, will they just minimise as time moves on? What do you foresee there in in that situation? There's short-term and long-term. I think uh, immediately we'll just see a lot of people vaccinated, which is, you know, I support everyone in whatever decision they make. You know, I just give so much love and respect for whatever decision they make. And I would never want to encourage anyone to make a decision one way or the other. It's not for me to decide. Um, God forbid I say to someone, don't get the vaccine and they get COVID and they die. Or God forbid I say to someone, get the vaccine and they die from that. So um, either way, I don't want to be influencing people 
which way they should go on that because it's a personal decision they have to listen to. And I don't think there's a right or wrong there. So a lot of people will get vaccinated and that can have some very significant short-term benefits in the world. I don't know what the long-term are because we just haven't been down that road for long enough. We haven't tested it. So we just don't know what the ramifications of that are. I don't know how many boosters they have to get. I don't know how long they're going to be immune to a, vax, to a, a virus that continually mutates and tries to find a way around the flanks. It doesn't just go away. It just looks for other ways to enter into the host. Um, and what we're really being offered here is a long-term opportunity to be a lot more sovereign in having greater immune defense. And that's not that complex, but it seems that it is for most humans and that our ability to reclaim our sovereignty in what it is to be an optimally healthy human being surprisingly has been really we fall very short of that but it is an opportunity anytime we've got disease disaster turmoil chaos or turbulence it's really an intelligence across the universe or across the planet within within our own experience that's guiding us to evolve and up level and so we can either resist that and think that we'll just keep doing what we're doing and hopefully something will fix that, take a pill and fix that. Or we can actually start to expand our mind, break out of an old code and old condition and start to think outside the box and start to think a little bit more progressively and think what is this opportunity offering us that could really see us collectively as a species really reclaim incredible health for all humans on the planet. And it's really not that complicated. Fresh running water, healthy food, few minerals and herbs and supplements and boom, Bob's your uncle. You're pretty good, right? And so hopefully we can get uh, to that level of uh, in the not too distant future down the track. I'm hearing you and I'm feeling you. And then I'll challenge you to say, how do we see through the thickness that we're in right now? Because I, I believe what you believe and my optimism shines bright. And then I see borders being closed for organic food trucks to come and deliver food uh, yet McDonald's and Coles and Woolworths full of other crap can easily pass through. I see health precincts closed and I see fast food chains like McDonald's and um, other things open. In this thick of it, when, when people have the same perspectives as we have, but maybe are starting to lose a little bit of that optimism of belief, how... How can they shift it? You know, we have to look at things that things are progressing. It's, it's so exciting how things are progressing. It's hard to see it sometimes when you're so deep in the trenches, but um, the fact that we're even having this conversation, you're in Sweden and I'm here in Australia and we're having this conversation and challenging the system. And there's a, there's a sequence that happens. First, the first thing is people start to wake up and when they start waking up, they start sort of pulling the veil back and they start looking or looking, have this capacity to see through the veil and start questioning. So the first thing they do after waking up is question. And the second thing they do is they challenge. And after the third thing they do is they start to dismantle, start to break things down. The fourth thing they do after they've broken it down is start to rebuild. And then the fifth stage that they do is they start to live in it. And so it goes through these stages and we're only at really stage one and stage two, which is people starting to wake up and starting to question. The challenging process will start to happen, which is almost starting to happen now, but it's building momentum. And we talk about this in the film and the book um, where we use this analogy of the caterpillar morphing into the butterfly. And it's not a black and white process that just happens like that. It's a sequential process that unfolds over time. And we've only had the ability, this is thing we've got to get into perspective. We've only had the ability to share such wisdom 
such truths, such techniques for 15 years across the planet, you know, pre-internet, mm. when I learned meditation, mm. I could only learn meditation from a teacher in company with that person. So we've had 10,000 years where truth, wisdom, knowledge, techniques that give you truth, wisdom, and knowledge were retained and preserved in very, very remote locations. We're talking monasteries up in mountaintops in Tibet, in China, in India, in Spain, in Italy, where that knowledge stayed the domain of a very small handful of people that preserved it for thousands of years, knowing that if they brought it down from the mountains and into the masses, it would simply get crucified and annihilated, which has pretty much happened anytime someone tried to do that. But all of a sudden, in the last 20, 30 years, something significant happened. It came down from the mountains and out of the monasteries. And then all of a sudden, to help proliferate that ongoing spreading, the viral spreading of knowledge and wisdom and love and truth, has been the discovery of the internet and the ability to transfer information across the world in a nanosecond and reach vast amounts of people instantaneously. So now we have 100 million people using the car map. We've got people reading my book and watching my film. We've got people doing podcasts like this. This is a new phenomenon. This is five, 10 years old. So imagine in five, 10 years time when we've got this exponential level of growth of techniques, tools, and wisdom to allow people to wake up and look through the veil and then start to challenge the system and then start to dismantle it. I love it. That makes a lot of sense. I think everyone listening will be able to l- relate to that at a different level too. Uh, I'm going to ask you about the portal in a second, but before I do, one thing that I keep coming back to, have you read the book uh, by Viktor Frankl, A Man's Search for Meaning? I haven't. I've heard a lot about it. I heard good things about it. So one day. And so you know about it. You don't really need to read it to, to if you know what it's about. Uh, and I've mentioned it so many times on this podcast. So long-term listeners know what I'm talking about, but I just keep coming back to that concept of six to seven years that he spent in Auschwitz concentration camp and watched the way people behaved and people who had optimism and belief that they would get out and that they would see their family again. And that's what they sunk into every day with starvation, with torture, with watching people being murdered and tortured around them. They're the people who survived, obviously the ones who weren't sent to to their deaths, but they're the people who survived. And the people who sunk into despair, disbelief, um, lots of fear, only the worry and the doubt and could not see the other side, they're the people who ran at the fence, which means when if you run at the fence, they just shot you dead. Or they're the people who died of the malnutrition. And he came out and created a whole therapy around it, logotherapy. So I just look at this time and think, not to compare it to the those days um, and and all the torture and everything that went through, but just to compare it to that's where my optimism and belief comes through, like what you were saying around the human race. I've been saying when the fear dust settles, um, when the fear dust settles, sanity will prevail, and that's what I'm hearing you say through your through your wisdom here. We have to be what we want the world to be, you know, like who was it that said, I think it was Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. And so that's one of my favorite sayings. Yeah. If we, if we stoop to, and you know, I, I get calls every day from friends, colleagues, clients that are struggling right now. And, and I get it. It is, it is hard. There's, trust me, there's some days I kind of curl up in a ball and go, oh my God, I want to get out. <laughs> mm. But we have to acknowledge our humanness. We have to acknowledge our emotional states when we're moving through that energetic trans, you know, the energetic current that's moving through us, and and just respect that. However, um, try not to indulge in it or stay too prolonged in that, but to also continue to look at what do I want to embody, what do I want to represent, what can I be an embodiment of to 
to, to represent the new status quo for the future. And really, whether you're in, in physical form or not, what we leave behind is the resonance of our vibration. And Viktor Frankl left behind the resonance of his frequency in his books. And already today we're talking about and it's shifting how we feel because we're discussing something that was not the physical form that was there or not there. It's the energy, the intelligence, mm. the, the state that he was in. And I always say to my clients that I'm coaching, it's like, it's not what you do. It's the state you're in while you do what you do that's mm. important because that state is the resonance that remains behind. That's powerful. On that, that's how we know that when people make that choice from the right place, it's their right choice and their right decision, Yeah. whatever the choice is when it's done from that energetic space. That's beautiful. So before we wrap up, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what is this uh, movie, The Portal, and why should we all immerse ourselves in it? So it's a film and a book. Um, the book is an extension of the film. The film uh, and the book is an exploration into real life stories, six real life stories that went through their own crisis and they moved out of crisis, found their way through crisis, alchemized out of their, their suffering using tools of meditation and mindfulness. And we wanted to show through personal story, we saw film as a great device for personal story telling uh, and book as well. And so we pulled together these amazing stories we found all around the world, very diverse stories. And um, we followed them on a journey through their childhood, through their upbringing, through the, what led them to their crisis, which is coding, conditioning, mindset. And we look at, we've got three futurists that we weave in and out of the film and the book that are really looking at things on a macro perspective. And they look at humanity, where, we, where we've come from, where we are, where we might be going. And we don't give you the solution of where we're going. We ask you the question because we could be going into an enlightened planet. But there's also a very high probability we could going into self-termination. And we're at that fork in the road right now. And that's the thing that we're really asking is, like, you know, we're at that fork in the road. Which way does it go from here? Because what we do today is going to determine the outcome. And we need to get very serious about that and start thinking about that. And so it's a, you know, it's a it's an interesting film that's unique. It's uh, quite different. It's I think it's a beautifully made film uh, that the director and the editor and the DOP and the sound guys and musicians put pulled together. I kind of was like the, the person that kind of corralled it, but you know, to, to see what these amazing artists have pulled together, I think it's really unique and beautiful. And we wanted to make something that challenged people, that tested people, but it's not the traditional documentary. So it's not a standard documentary. So some people kind of struggle with it and some people really love it. And uh, yeah, it's just we uh, let people have their own experience when they go through it. When was that film completed? Uh, late 2019. How different, would you have done anything differently based on how you've seen the world change in the last couple of years since that's finished? Um, yeah, you know, you always go back and think, oh gosh, if only we did this and if only we did that. Um, look, there was a lot of things we were kind of initially intending. You know, the hardest part now is trying to get your art, um, your message, uh, and compete with the other devices out there and the other platforms and the other distractions. And that's the challenge that we're facing right now. Um, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons. I've made a lot of mistakes uh, along the way uh, with getting this film out. I probably would have done things not so much in the message of the film and, and stuff because it's all about crisis and overcoming crisis, probably in the, the, the way we distribute it and the way we get it out to the world. Um, 
So the message still remains absolutely clear with what we're going through, regardless of that it came out kind of pre-COVID? Yeah, it's probably more relevant today than it's ever been. Do you think that if you were to do maybe a part two or a different documentary in, say, five years' time, um, would it be a a build off of that? Or like, do you see with what we're going through now that, holy shit, things are shifting and changing and it's, we've got to put something else out there or is it just so aligned with humanity and this is meant to happen? Yeah, we wanted to stay really neutral. Uh, it was really important we did that. We didn't want to project anything. We didn't want to impose any ideology mm, in it. Brilliant. It's very, very neutral. So it, this is this is the one thing we always set up as a premise with the film was that it had longevity. And, you know, if we referred to even a celebrity or a politician or something or some current state of affairs that it would it would lose its longevity. We wanted to really leave a legacy behind and we leave something that had, you know, something that had almost like an eternality to it in some way. Because um, storytelling, like Viktor Frankl's book, you know, it's 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 going to have, it's it stands the test of time. And so I guess that's kind of something that we wanted to do with this. So I don't necessarily think I'll be doing another film <laughs> unless something changes for this one but it's been pretty tough i must admit i could only imagine um and i've been saying when the fear dust settles sanity will prevail so maybe as that fear dust settles the sanity is what's prevailing is the portal movie and people yeah. are exposing themselves to it more from a non-fear based state and so they're they're actually receiving the message that is being put out there uh from a from a non-judgmental perspective so I get it. That's really powerful, mate. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Very mindful of time. And I know that uh, you give your your wisdom globally and often. So I'm abundantly grateful for that, for you sharing your time and uh, wisdom with my community and myself. Um, so as we wrap up, where can the listeners learn more about you on social media or website? And then how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Oh, thank you. Um, I'm probably most active on Instagram. Tom Cronin at Instagram uh, and then my website, tomcronin.com. If they want to watch the film, they can go to enter the portal and they can watch the film. They can gift the film. They can become a partner with us. We wanted to bring uh, into our model, uh, even looking at Game B and Satyuga, an economic model that was a win-win for all. So people can become a partner and share 50% in the revenue with us um, of the film and the meditation program. And so that was something we felt really important that we share the process with everyone and invite the world to become part of this process. If they wanted to watch the film, gift the film, share the film, they can go to enterthepodal.com. Brilliant. And I'll link all of that up in the show notes. Is there anything else that you would like to say to the listeners before we wrap up? It's a difficult time and it's going to get even more so. And that's okay. You know, uh, some of my most significant turning points in my life, in fact, the most significant turning point in my life was one of my darkest. So we find it hard when we're in those dark times, those difficult times, because we can't see on the horizon. But if we can just know deeply that this is evolution and evolution is a greater force than our own egoic, uh, individual or collective egoic tendencies, that what prevails is something greater, something better, something more harmonious, something more divine. And that's unfolding. It's unfolding. And if we can keep our perspective on that, keep our attention on that and have a great sense of hope, then, uh, it will be a smoother transition. Tom, you're a legend. The world needs great role models right now more than ever. And you are an inspiring, authentic leader that 
the decision makers of this time, if they were following, we might be experiencing things um, very, very differently. But as you said, it's a transition we need to go through. So thank you again and keep shining your genuine, abundant light to the world, my man. Pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me along today. There you go, legends. Thank you again for listening to a wisdom-filled, heart-centered, soulful human being. If if you didn't connect with what Tom was saying or some of it went over your head, I challenge you to sink into your best self, operate from your blueprint, in alignment with your values, do the breathing, do some meditation. Let's all shift together into compassion and away from fear and judgment and, and opinions into our truer self and maybe then re-listen and make some decisions. It's, it's a real honor to have someone on here that can speak from such a centered place. And I'm forever grateful that people like Tom exist to show us that even in this turmoil and this thickness, there is room for compassion. There is room for connection. There is better decisions made without judgment, without opinions, and in alignment with wisdom. As a reminder, you can follow Tom on Instagram at Tom Cronin. Jump on, check out his movie, The Portal Film, and... If you would like to share this episode with anyone else that you know is getting value or tag Tom and I on social media when you listen to it, that'd be greatly appreciated to help spread the message of a very optimistic future that we all have ahead of us. Keep thriving, legends. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.